0: Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Persino Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Leslie DiPietro, one of the attorneys at PWW Law, and I'm joined today by another one of our attorneys, Michelle Persino Wells. We're excited to talk about advanced health care directives today, so let's get started. Hey, Michelle, how are you? I'm great, Leslie. Good. So let's talk about healthcare directives. What is a healthcare directive? Can you kind of give us an easy definition? Sure. Well, generally, you know, so
1: it's interesting in different states they're called different things. Delaware, it's called an advanced healthcare directive for the most part, and in, in Maryland, I think it's called a, a, a direct an, an advanced directive for healthcare. You know, yes. so they're all the same thing though, and they all address, you know, obviously advanced healthcare decision making. Um, the directive is a document that it's we call it a lifetime document because it's only going to be effective while a person is living, um, it's a way for a person to really think about some of their medical decision making if they become unable to make those decisions or communicate those decisions and so having that document in place can be a real blessing for a person's family to have given you know given some some thought to these topics so if your family's being asked to make questions they have some guidance but generally it's going to be broken down into three different parts. Um, one is naming a, a medical a, an agent to make medical decisions to a power of attorney document, but it's going to be limited in scope to just medical or healthcare decision-making. Then typically the directive is going to have a living will type of section where it's going to allow people to give some instruction about end-of-life decision-making. And then generally most directives are also going to include a section related to organ donation or anatomical gifts is the, the legal term for that. So really important things um, for people to think about and planning to have in place.
0: Yeah. So with respect to the living will, so um, end of life wishes, what's sort of the, it's a pretty narrow scope, right? So when does that living will kick into effect? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So, and it's really important to understand, you know, I've had folks say to me, well, gosh, if
1: I have a living will and I I have to go to the emergency department, are they going to not? treat me because you know I have I have this directive in place that I don't want my life prolonged and so again really important to understand that yeah if you go to the ED um, they're going to treat you (laughs) they're going to make sure that you're okay because the directive is really intended to be something that's given much more consideration so the idea is it requires two physicians have to be involved and those physicians number one have to determine that you are incapacitated just meaning that you lack the capacity to either make your own medical decisions or that you're unable to communicate those decisions. And that living will component, those doctors also are going to have to determine that you are either terminally ill or permanently unconscious. And the statutes define those terms. And when you read those definitions, um, which the standard document includes, um, you'll learn that that it really is intended to be very end of life kinds of conditions. The definitions say things like it's a total and irreversible condition, or that there is no reasonable expectation of recovery. So that tells you, you know, this isn't something where if you just go to the hospital um, and that they're not going to treat you. Obviously, it's only going to apply if those two physicians you know have made um, you know a detailed analysis of the situation and that they're willing to certify in writing that your condition is irreversible. And then the standard living will says if the doctors agree that your condition is irreversible, the standard living will then says, do not prolong my life
0: and do not use life-sustaining procedures. And, you know, we talk about how we protect families all the time. But to me, when I'm talking with families, making sure that you've directed these wishes can be it can be such uh, like you said, it's just such a blessing to families to know this is what mom wanted me to do. So they don't have to uh, impress their own judgment on the situation. They really feel like they're acting on behalf of mom. Right. And the important thing to understand,
1: too, I've had many people say to me that, um, you know, they had a a situation with a loved one and that the doctors were perhaps reluctant to enforce the directive. Or I've actually had people say to me, oh, it's not worth the paper it's written on that, that, um, you know, they don't enforce. They still want the family to decide. So the, the reality is that it's a legally enforceable document. So if you had to go to, uh, you know, if, 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 if mom has a a living will in place and, you know, doctors are saying there's no hope and maybe son is saying, you know, mom's got a living will. She didn't want her life prolonged. Maybe daughter is saying, no, 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 we can't let mom go. No, no, no. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. You know, son could um, go to court and get a court order to enforce um, the, the living will and that life sustaining procedures be withheld. Um, But it generally doesn't come to that. Um, It generally is still going to be a conversation with the family, with the doctors, Um, but having that document, I've had, I've had so many people say to me that having that document and being able to read it and knowing what mom or dad or spouse's wishes are um, takes a little, you know, that that's never an easy decision, but it takes a little of the burden off of those family members when they're being, you know, having those discussions with the doctors.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the agents, right? Getting down to that, that idea of uh, who your medical decision maker will be. Um, how does somebody kind of go about making that decision?
1: So always, and, and you'll hear us if you, if, you know, for listeners, if you listen to our podcast, you know, if you listen to several of them, you're going to hear this time and time again, where we're going to talk about always trying to choose the best person for the job. Um, and so in naming agents, you know, you really do have to think about who is going to be able to make decisions, you know, um, who's going to be able to, to, you know, provide information to other family members, you know, who's really going to be um, level-headed about it and decide who's best for that role. Really important thing, though, I want to point out with related to the living will and the uh, medical power of attorney. So the living will section, you know, that's where you're saying, I don't want my life prolonged if two doctors have said there's no hope. That really is where you're making that decision in advance. You know, I always have clients that will joke with me and they say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to name my daughter because, you know, or I'm not going to name, maybe I'm not going to name my daughter because, you know, she'll just pull the plug <laughs> you know, and they'll, they'll joke about that. And so it's important to understand that who you name as the agent, you know, they're not really going to have that final say of the pulling the plug or the, the life-sustaining procedures because that's what the living will section is. You know, that's your advanced instructions saying, if I'm in a qualifying condition, do not prolong my life. But certainly who you name as agent really is intended to then cover all other types of medical decision making. And so it's really important. Um, You know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the oldest child or the one that lives the closest. Um, Just again, really important to look at the pool of people you have to choose
0: from and making sure that
1: you're choosing the best person for the job.
0: Yeah. And so sometimes too, we've talked in other podcasts about how the person you select is the power of attorney agent Mm -hmm. under your financial document or your trustee or your executor. Sometimes that's all the same person. Um, I certainly have had experiences where the the one who's good with the money and the legal decisions might be different than uh, that person in that pool who's really good and level-headed if there's a medical crisis that goes on. Do you have that same experience? Uh, Yeah. And that is a great point to make because I often have that happen. Where, it, yeah, all those
1: financial roles, it's often the same person. And that often makes a lot of sense. So there's not confusion as to who has what authority, um, whether it's agent under power of attorney or trustee under the trust. But absolutely, when it comes to the healthcare directive, it is certainly appropriate to name someone else if you feel like someone else is better suited to making those types of healthcare decisions. You know, I've had clients before where they have, you know, one child who's a CPA and one child who's a nurse well, you know, it kind of makes
0: sense who they're going to name for which role. But again, that's because that comes down to who's best for the job. Right. And I think, too. The other thing to think about, you know, we start off a lot of times in the healthcare directive talking about the living will, end of life decisions. But I think it's important to remember that this document could come into play and stay in play for a, a long period of time. So any time uh, you are incapacitated, whether it's I'm having surgery and I'm unconscious for a, a couple hours or a day, or I'm suffering from dementia and I, am, I need somebody to make day-to-day decisions for me. So that comes into play too.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's again, why it's so important to have these documents in place because it could be a very long-term kind of situation in which it's needed.
0: Yeah. And so then there's a third component to the healthcare directive. Why don't you talk about anatomical sure. gifts? Sure. So organ donations. So it's it, it always
1: um, amuses me a little when I bring this topic up with clients. Um, some people start squirming in their chair. You could tell <laughs> that they're not OK with it. And and then other people are like, oh, yeah, I've got that on my driver's license. Um, so so important things to understand about the directive. Um, the, the form of the directive that we use actually allows a person to say, no, I'm not interested in organ donation at my death and so i think that that's really important for a person to be able to put in their documents so that way if that question is being asked that it's clear that that's something that they're not open to or they're not okay with Um, it's also important to understand when in comparing to what's on your driver's license you know it's usually like i think a little red heart that goes on your driver's license well all that is is a yes or no that either says you're open to organ donation or you're not presumably if the heart's not there you don't necessarily know if it's not there intentionally or you just they didn't ask the question when you went or you forgot or whatever so the directive is really nice in that it allows people to to put down their wishes in writing so the other thing that always amuses me and I think I at least once a week someone says this this to me it's like ah everything I've got so worn out, nobody's going to want any of my organs (laughs) when I go. And I think isn't that always all of our goal, you know, our goal to kind of have it all worn out by the time we leave this earth. Um, But, you know, I've had clients in their 90s still fill it out. You know, I have one lady, gosh, years ago, she was so sweet. And she's like, they might want to study why I've lived so long. And she's like, I think it's because I eat a lot of blueberries. But anyway, (laughs) so, so so anyway, um, you know, it just allows a person to, there's three different sections that allow a person to say what they're willing to donate. Um, The way we format our document, it's sort of a multiple choice kind of format where they can say, you know, I'm willing to donate my entire body or any needed organs or parts, or they could be specific and list certain organs like My heart, my kidneys. Um, The second section allows you to designate, you know, basically who you're going to give authority to administer your donated organs. So it can be the hospital in which I die, the physician in attendance at my death, um, or you can name a particular medical institution if you choose to do that, or a particular physician for that matter. And then, really important, the third section addresses for what purposes a person wants to donate their organs. Um, And so for the 90 year old, yeah, chances are probably not usable for transplantation purposes, probably not going to be eligible for that, but might be eligible for research or medical education. So that section allows a person, if they're really open, um, they can say any purpose authorized by law. So a lot of clients choose that. Others feel like that is way too broad. (laughs) And so some people you can choose transplantation, therapy, medical education, or research, or sort of any combination of those. So Obviously, never a guarantee that a person's organs will be usable or that anyone will want them when they pass away, unfortunately. Um, But really, again, great planning to have in place to let your family know what your thoughts and, and wishes are with respect to that.
0: Really good. So let's, let's kind of address some questions that we get, some distinctions um, um, or specifications with respect to the power of attorney and certain other laws that might impact that document. So sometimes I have clients say, you know, I want my document to have a do not resuscitate <laughs> order. So speak to that concern. Yeah. So
1: a DNR, a DNR, yeah, people um there is a big misconception out there when you start talking about advanced healthcare directives that people associate that with what you know, a DNR, a do not resuscitate order. First thing to understand about a DNR is that it is a medical order. So it's not a document that an attorney creates. It's not a document that you download off the internet. Um it's something a medical order has to be prepared by a healthcare professional. And a a do not resuscitate order is just that. It means, you know, if my heart stops, do not resuscitate me, even if you think you can. And that's the real key to it. You know, perhaps um, someone who has maybe a terminal diagnosis, you know, maybe they have, you know, an advanced stage of cancer and they might say, you know what, if, if something happens, I just, you know, and, and, if, and if I need to be resuscitated, just let me go. And so that's a DNR. The Advanced Healthcare Directive is very different. It's a document that you typically are creating when you're healthy or relatively healthy and you don't have a specific concern or a specific, um, like a terminal illness that you're worried about, but it's something you're putting in place in case you're in a terrible accident and then the doctors determine that you're terminally ill. So it's that advanced planning that you do, whereas a DNR is something you're typically only going to create with a healthcare professional if you're in a particular um, medical condition. You have a particular medical condition where that makes sense, where you would say, do not resuscitate me, you know, even if you think you might be able to. I also like to compare that to something that's newer. Um, there's the the medical orders for scope of treatment, which is sort of the in between <laughs> between the advanced healthcare directive and a DNR. Um, so medical orders for scope of treatment is something that's been around only for gosh what I guess maybe the last five six years or so. Um, but it's another way for people to plan sort of their end of life care. It generally also is only appropriate for a person if they have some kind of medical condition where they think they have perhaps maybe one year or less to live. It also is a medical order, so it has to be created with a healthcare professional. But it allows a person to talk about what types of treatment care they want in end of life. I mean, it's a pretty detailed document. So, again, not something that we create, um, but something that, that folks who find themselves in that type of situation should definitely be. Be talking to their physicians about. But just clear, you know, to be to be clear to understand that the health care directive, something you just do in advance as part of your estate plan and you hope you never need it. <laughs> so very different from that DNR or that, that medical order for scope of treatment document.
0: But along that same line, our health care directive would also say if I'm incapacitated, my agent can engage with my medical professionals to help facilitate either of those medical directives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. So if you don't have one of those other uh, medical orders in place, and if your condition gets to a point where you no longer have capacity to create one of those, then absolutely having the advanced directive in place is going to be critical because then your agent can work with your healthcare professionals to make sure that you receive you know the best care possible
0: at that point and that you're with are carried out. Really good. Thank you so much for sharing, Michelle. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302 628 4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. So from Michelle and Leslie, thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.